Please turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. We'll be wrapping up our series in Thessalonians this week and next week as we look at these final two chapters here. And Paul, having written just a few short weeks after the letter to 1 Thessalonians, is addressing some specific issues that have come up. Follow along with me as I read this passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed who the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Let us pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, as we come to this difficult passage, we pray that you would give us clarity of thought and understanding. And Lord, that the things described here would be impressed upon us that no matter what comes our way, no matter the challenges that we face in this life and the challenges that are yet to come for this world, that, Father, we will stand firm and hold to the truth of the gospel. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a time in each and every person's life as they figure out who they are, where they must decide what it is that they believe, who they are going to be as a person, what they believe to be true. And as they are confronted with the beliefs of their family, the beliefs of their friends, the beliefs of their peers, as they seek to understand the events in their own life, in the events of this world, in light of the things that they have been taught, there is a time when people decide, who am I and what is it that I believe to be true? This is true for Christians, particularly those who have been raised in Christian homes. There comes a point in your life when you must figure out whether or not you believe these things for yourself, or you simply believe them because that's what your family believed and that's what they told you to believe. 
And there is a time in the midst of each and every generation of Christians when that generation of Christians must respond to the uprising against Christianity that occurs in each and every generation. And for most of those Christians, they will experience things that they've never heard of, that they've never known, that they have never seen before. And they're forced to wrestle with the question, what is it that I believe in the midst of all that is going on? And for each generation throughout history, many of the things that they are experiencing are things that have happened before, and that Christians have faced before, but things that they themselves are unaware. But yet, there is a time coming, and this passage here makes clear, there is a time coming when Christians will face an evil in this world that has never before been seen. And Paul here in this passage instructs them, and he also instructs us how we are to respond in the midst of the challenges that come at us in this life, and how we are to respond in the midst of a time when an evil will be present in this world that has never yet before been seen. Paul here, for a variety of reasons that we won't go into in depth, is describing what will happen in the days immediately preceding the return of Jesus Christ. So go into this passage, I do need to state that this passage is one of the most enigmatic and confusing passages in the New Testament. It is a passage, um, and as we go into this passage, my goal here is to state clearly what is clear in this passage, and not to give speculation to things that are unclear, because this has been a passage that has resulted in wild speculation by people who believe in the truth of Christianity and the truth of Scriptures. What we're going to look at as we dive into this is first, and most importantly, we're going to examine how Paul calls us to respond in the midst of the challenges that come in this world. And then after looking at how we should respond, we're going to dive into what Paul says are the events that will immediately precede the return of Jesus Christ. And to begin with, the application that Paul calls us to in this passage is to stand firm upon the grace of God. To stand firm and hold on to the truth of the gospel. Here, Paul in this passage, despite the present and future sufferings that these Christians are going to face, despite the challenges and the blasphemy and the lawlessness and the ferocious attacks that these Christians have faced, in both attacks that are physical and moral and attacks against their beliefs, Paul is remarkably calm as he addresses this, groups of, this group of Christians. And he is remarkably calm because his confidence is in the truth of the gospel. And Paul lays out in one sentence this breadth of what God is doing in this intersection between these things that, that are confusing to us and, and can be perplexing between human choice and God's sovereignty. And Paul lays all these things out here in these verses in verse 13 and 14. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to you, God, brothers beloved by God. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits. That could also be referred to, translated from the beginning. God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification, that is, by being made holy, that you become more Christ-like, through sanctification by the Spirit and by belief in the truth. To this he called you 
through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in one very brief stroke, Paul identifies that before the foundation of the world, God chose those who are Christians, God chose them to be saved. And the way God worked out his choice is that in time, he called Christians, called us to himself, and he called us to himself by making sure that people heard the gospel, and in hearing the gospel, this truth that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and rose from the grave, that we might have life everlasting, that in time, God chose us, and he so worked that we would hear the gospel and turn individually and make a decision to believe the gospel, and so become God's child, be set apart, and over the course of our life, become more Christ-like, and eventually join him in eternal glory. And Paul says, all of this God has done, and that is a secure truth. It's a secure foundation of the grace of God that is manifested to you that you have come to experience and believe by your individual belief in the gospel. And it is this truth that Paul sees as the impetus and the great motivation for the command that he gives to them to deal with the challenges of life. And his command to them is this, in verse 15. Because you are called, because of the grace of God is secure, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to. Stand firm and hold to this double command. It's a restatement of what he said in the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, where he says to them, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Stand firm. In verse 3, when he says, let no one deceive you in any way. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. The picture here and the the allusions and the words that he chooses to use are these pictures of gale force winds, hurricane winds that sweeps a person off their feet. That no matter how hard they are holding on to the railing, that the wind comes and wrenches their handhold away. And Paul is urging them, is saying, listen, in the midst of the gale force winds that will be coming, stand firm. Plant your feet securely on the gospel. Hold on to it, secure, because it is that alone which is solid and unmovable. And the Greek word that Paul uses for this command of standing firm and holding to, there's two nuances in the Greek that are important for me to mention. One of them is this. The verb form is actually a present, present imperative for you grammar hawks. And what that means is that he's not just saying stand firm, but it has a continuing action. He's saying, keep standing, keep holding on, don't let go, that your relationship with Jesus is not just something that occurred years ago, but right now, in this present moment, stand firm, keep holding on, keep standing, don't let go. Your conversion's not something that just happened 20 years ago, but your relationship with Jesus needs to be as alive today as it was in the first time that you trusted in him, however many years ago it was, if you're here and you're a Christian. Stand firm. Keep on standing firm. Keep holding to the truth. The second thing about the language that Paul uses here is that these two commands are both given in the plural. They're not given to individuals. They are given in the plural. They're spoken to a group, not to individuals. And it serves as a rebuke against the rampant individualism present here in this place, in our culture, and in our nation. As a rebuke against the rampant individualism 
and also as a rebuke against the rampant self-exaltation of ourselves as the final arbiter of truth. Paul's saying, stand firm. Do you need to do so individually? Yes, but more so, you need to do so collectively. As a body, you need to stand firm and hold to the truth of the gospel and not be, pers- not be dissuaded from it. Well, what is it that to hold on to? Paul uses the language in verse 15. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. The usage of the word tra- traditions here also means teachings. We don't quite get a good English cognate for us. And when he uses this word, he's not referring to the later traditions of the church, but to the original teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. What he's saying is that you need to stand firm and hold on. You need to be uncompromisingly loyal to the word of God and to the New Testament and the truth of the gospel, for this alone is the firm ground upon which to stand. It is the only truth that is worth holding on to. It is the only thing that will keep you secure from the latest challenges and the latest winds coming against Christianity. That is Paul's main encouragement for us today. And then, and this is where this passage gets, starts to get very interesting. Paul says that we need to stand firm against several different things. The first thing that he encouraged the Thessalonians to stand firm against is they need to stand firm against false teaching. In 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Paul examined the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's return, which we looked at several weeks ago. But what's happened here is Paul, just a few weeks later after writing the first letter, writes this letter, and he says to them this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being to gather together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, that is, stand firm, don't be shaken either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be, from up, to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless, and then he goes on to describe what must come first. What's happened to the church in Thessalonica is Paul has given them teaching about the coming day of the Lord, and someone else, a false teacher, has come around and said, well, I know Paul said that, but guess what? You missed it. The return of Christ has already come. Now, there's a modern version of this. In 1874, there was a man by the name of Pastor Charles Russell who predicted that the world would end in 1874. It did not. He then revised his calculations and said that the world was going to end in the year 1914. It did not, actually, excuse me, that Christ would return in the year 1914 and that the world would end. It did not happen. His successor, a man by the name of Judge J.F. Rutherford, said to his followers then that, in fact, Jesus Christ did come on October 1st, 1914. But when Jesus came on October 1st, 1914, he did so invisibly. And what he did when he came invisibly is he exchanged his ordinary seat at the Father's right hand for the throne of his kingdom. So Jesus is not coming back because that's already happened. And those who hold to that view today are refer- self-identify themselves as the Jehovah's Witnesses who come and knock on your door. And it's in response to this similarly bizarre contortion of the Word of God, And in response to a similarly bizarre contortion of history that Paul lays out verses 4 through 13 of chapter 2. And as we go into this, 
I do want to note that Leon Morris, who is a brilliant New Testament scholar, gives this comment on this passage. He says, This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings. And the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. So again, as we enter into this, my point is to state clearly what is clear and not to enter into that. And Paul says to them, and so this is what Paul clearly states. He says, listen, Jesus is coming back, but you need to stand firm until that time because Jesus is not going to come back until two things have happened. Two things have not yet occurred. There needs to be a certain person and there needs to be a certain event. That person the rebel, elsewhere known in Scripture as the Antichrist, needs to come. And once he is revealed, it will set loose the rebellion as the event that needs to occur. So Paul breaks up these, we can break up these next several verses as follows. Paul says we need to stand firm against the rebel, that's verses 3 through 5. We need to stand firm against the rebellion, that's verses 6 through 8. And we need to stand firm against the rising of the rebellion, verses 8 through 12. Let's dive in. Paul says, stand firm against the rebel, verses 3 through 5. Here's what Paul writes. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What's clear is Paul is saying, as certain as is the return of Jesus Christ, so certain is the appearance of the rebel. Now here, in these two verses, Paul actually gives the rebel four names. It's a very unusual Greek construct that he uses here, and there's four different names that he ties together in this odd structure with the verb. But here are the four names that Paul gives him. One we see clearly is um, in verse, uh, verse 3. He says, unless the rebellion comes first, and the first name is the man of lawlessness is revealed, that he is the lawless one, the man of lawlessness. The second name is that he is the one we can say is that he is the doomed one, the son of destruction. These are each in the Greek. They're each separate titles that are given here. So he says, one, there is the man of lawlessness. Two, there is the son of destruction. We can say the lawless one, the doomed one. The third one is that he is the enemy, verse 4, the opposed one, he who opposes, the one of opposition, he who opposes, that's the fourth one, the third one, and the fourth one is that he is the enemy, that's the enemy, the opposed one, and the fourth one is that he is the godless one, the one who exalts himself, self, the, the, the self-exalted one would be the term in verse 4, the self-exalted one who exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, um, and takes his seat in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Four different titles here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm referring to them all as the rebel, elsewhere in Scripture referred to as the Antichrist. Why the Antichrist elsewhere? Because they are anti-Christ, opposed to everything about Jesus Christ. They are the Antichrist. That's why that term is, that's why uh, John uses that term. So, what is described here? These four different names is saying, stand firm against the, re- the rebel. And the emphasis in this passage is on the first name and on the fourth name, that he is the lawless one and the godless one, that he is the lawless one who is opposed to the rule of law. He is the one who is opposed to moral laws, 
that there is no such thing as a moral truth, that whatever is right for you is right for you. There is no such thing as a universal wrong. The Holocaust wasn't universally wrong. That's not th- that, there is, that there is no moral or universal truth. There is no such thing as that. He is opposed to law. Not only is he opposed to the moral law, he's opposed to the civil law. Anarchy in the name of freedom. He is the lawless one. But the rebel is also the godless one who is opposed to God and who demands worship for himself that is forbidden to anyone or anything else. That there is worship and obedience to him alone. And the rebel's goal is not anarchy, but, but totalitarianism. That's the goal. And Paul says, stand firm against the rebel. Now, who is the rebel? Who is the Antichrist? Throughout church history, Christians, for good reason, have identified various people with the Antichrist. But we do so, and as we look at this with a word of caution, one is that Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told these things? Paul is clarifying a conversation that he was there for. We were not a part of that conversation. So we're not going to suggest things that were in that conversation that we don't know that, that, that we don't know what was there. The second thing is that history has shown um, the numerous Christians who have, and the I would say the carnage and damage of incautious, self-confident Christians who have made mistaken attempts to connect some contemporary person or event with the description here in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Nonetheless, let's look at several of these people because it helps us understand what's going on. Is that in the history of the world, there have been multiple figures who have proven themselves to be Antichrist, little a, and not the Antichrist, capital A. And this passage here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 continues the theme of both the Old Testament and New Testament references to the Antichrist and saying how should we respond, namely by standing firm and holding to the truth. One of the most lawless and godless persons in history and events occurred in the year 169 B.C. This was before the writing of the New Testament, before Jesus, before this letter to Thessalonians was written. In 169 B.C., there was a Syrian uh, army general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who came through and he conquered Israel, conquered Jerusalem, and did the most appalling desecration of God's temple in Jerusalem, is that he conquered Jerusalem and then he went into the temple and he, has set, and he set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and then went out and sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar of, on the Jewish altar of sacrifice in the temple courts. This act, um, you could, I mean, to consider in a theocracy that Israel was, to have a Syrian ruler come in, not only conquer, but erect a statue of, a statue of Zeus and, put, and sacrifice a pig in the Jewish temple, could, you know, if we could imagine ISIS coming into the United States, conquering the U.S., turning the U.S. capital into a mosque and the White House into the home of the Caliphate, ordering all flags to be gathered together, cut up, and used as toilet paper, that would begin to hint at the, the depth of offense as occurred in, this, in what Antiochus Epiphanes had done. This event was referred to later in a historical book in the book of Maccabees as the abomination, of, the abomination of Desolation, which was foretold in the book of Daniel. 
Jesus and the Apostle Paul both reference the abomination of desolation, and both of them say that that event of Antiochus Epiphanes, most likely tied to Antiochus Epiphanes, is awaiting further development. And that what occurred in the abomination of desolation was a prototype and a forerunner of the coming Antichrist of the, of the rebel identified here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, Christians have wondered who is this man of godlessness and this man of lawlessness. Shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was identif- many identified Emperor Gaius, also known as Emperor Caligula, because in 40 AD, the emperor claimed that all worship, claimed the worship of all subjects, and he ordered a statue of himself to be erected in the temple of Jerusalem and everyone to fall down and to worship him inside the temple. After the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, and also because of um, Jesus' self-reference to himself being the temple of the Lord when he said, destroy this temple and I will, in three days I will rise it again, I will raise it from the dead, or I will raise it again. It's been also understood, this passage has also been understood, that the rebel would be one who is a global figure, a global figure of arrogance and blasphemy, completely opposed to Jesus Christ, who brings about a global deception, global godlessness, and global lawlessness. This, not inappropriately, has been identified with multiple Roman emperors who would fit the bill. In the Middle Ages, um, the church identified the Antichrist as Muhammad because he had stolen the Christian holy places and he had forced forced apostasy and conversion to Islam through his plan of decapitation and forced coercion as he advanced across North Africa and across Europe. And so it was identified as Muhammad. Then Franciscan monks identified that the Antichrist was actually the popes and the corrupt popes who exalted themselves in God's sanctuary. Then, after that, I'm going at the 10,000-foot view of, 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 of the big names. There's several other that could have fit the bill here. Then, also in the Middle Ages, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX, they each declared that each other, each other was the Antichrist, because of the rampant lawlessness and godlessness that both of them were exhibiting and demonstrating. After those two, when it came to the time of Reformation, we've now gone from 169 BC up to the 1500s right now. During the Reformation, Wycliffe, um, the Waldensians, John Huss, uh, Martin Luther in Germany, John Calvin in Geneva, Knox, Cranmer in Europe, all identified that the Pope was the Antichrist because of his godlessness, corruption, and his self-exaltation. In particular, at the time of the Reformation, there was, it was strongly saying that the Pope was the Antichrist, largely in part because the Pope was saying, if you want salvation and you want the forgiveness of sins, you need to pay your money to the church and get your indulgences paid for. And if you don't are doubting whether or not that has occurred, if you go to Italy and you go to the Vatican and, Saint, and the Sistine Chapel, but the whole Vatican complex was paid for in the 1500s by people seeking to pay their way into heaven by paying for their sins. It was entirely funded out of indulgences. And Martin Luther and the other reformers said, here is the Pope has self-exalted himself, he has distorted the gospel, and he has led a, he has led a mass and global apostasy because of, what has hap- because of his corruption. During the last two centuries, the Antichrists have been identified more as political figures rather than religi- religious figures. 
leading candidates would be Napoleon Bonaparte because of his arrogant absolutism, Napoleon III, Hitler in particular because of his slaughtering of over 5 million Jews, and then Mussolini and Stalin because of their state religion of atheism and communism that they were mandating and the eradication of Christians. Again, just a, just a sampling of who could fit the bill. Well, again, who is the Antichrist? It's probably best understood in terms of the light of Scripture, in the light of Holy Scripture, that the prediction of the Antichrist has had many fulfillments. And it may still have many more fulfillments. But what Paul is making clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that all of these many fulfillments of these Antichrists, lowercase a, are all forerunners of the Antichrist, capital A, of the rebel, of the final man of lawlessness and godlessness, of the leader of the ultimate rebellion, of the precursor that will signal the coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul's exhortation in the midst of all this, in the midst of global and political and religious upheaval, in the midst of global and political and religious apostasy, the calling for us as individual Christians is to stand firm on the truth of the gospel is to hold to what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection. To stand firm, in particular, when there are antichrists or the antichrist, the rebel. Third thing he says to stand firm against is stand firm against the rebellion, verses 6 through 8. Paul says in this cryptic language, And you know what is restraining him now? so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In verse 3, Paul identifies and says that the rebellion must come first. It's the word that we get the word apostasy from. In the Greek, the word apost- the, the Greek word there is used to describe It's typically used in Greek literature of a military revolt, of a political defection, and in biblical usage it's used as an outright rebellion against God. What Paul is identifying in the midst of these verses, verses 6 through 8, that when this is occurring in the midst of the rebellion, there is a deception. There is a godlessness and a lawlessness that will infiltrate and will engulf the nominal church. That people who self-identify as Christians will be led astray because they are not ones who are truly believing the gospel. But Paul also says that this isn't going to occur until the Antichrist is revealed. And until the Antichrist is revealed, there are two events that are two things that are working simultaneously. And the two things that are working simultaneously until the Antichrist is revealed and then the outright rebellion occurs, two things that are working simultaneously is, one, there is the secret power of lawlessness. What is that? Is that there is the secret working of subversiveness, of an undercover work of lawlessness and godlessness that is operating secretly now. Well, what does that look like today? John Stotts, whose insights in this passage have been immensely helpful, writes this. He says, His anti-social, anti-law, anti-God movement is at present largely underground. We detect it in its subversive influence around us today. 
in the atheistic stance of secular humanism. Secular humanism is a philosophy that all of you have been trained in, whether you know it or not. It's the view that is so rampant throughout our culture um, and is the basis of much of American society that holds to the view that people are basically good, that, um, that people will get better and better, that humans can get better and better, that there's nothing that we can't accomplish if we, don't, if we can set our minds to it. And Paul says, or John Stott says, we detected in its subversive influence around us today in the atheistic stance of secular humanism and the totalitarian tendencies of extreme left-wing and right-wing ideologies in the materialism of the consumer society which puts things in the place of God in those so-called theologies which proclaim the death of God and the end of moral absolutes and in the social permissiveness which cheapens the sanctity of human life, sex, marriage, and family, all of which God created or instituted that there is the secret power of lawlessness at work today. But at the same time, there is the restraining power that is also at work. And the restraining power is preventing the breakout of open rebellion. And the restraining power, it says only he who now restrains it will do so until it's out of the way, that there is a restraining power at work today that is restraining what would otherwise become a virulent outbreak. And that the restraining power today is also preserving some level of justice and freedom and order. But the day is coming when that restraint will be removed. And when that restraint is removed, it will bring about the, it will trigger the final outbreak. There will be a revealing of the Antichrist and then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he returns, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And victory will come at once. So in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the rumors of the rebellion, what are Christians to do? Stand firm and hold to the truth of the gospel. Not only that, but in verses, the final verses, verses 8 through 12, is to stand firm against its rising and the rising of the rebellion. What is it characterized as? It's characterized like this. That the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Pay attention to that phrase. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have had pleasure in unrighteousness to stand firm against the rising of the rebellion. What's being identified here is that there will be a worldwide breakdown of the rule of law and a worldwide breakdown of justice and a worldwide breakdown of the worship of God. And the devil himself will be puppeting the Antichrist who will present himself globally, I believe, as a false savior, as a counterfeit, as a counterfeit savior whose coming is notable, it is visible, it is accompanied by signs and wonders that is visible and powerful. And many will be pulled into the great satanic deception that this world has never before been seen. And many who are nominal Christians will be pulled into this great satanic deception and will be deceived and deluded. What the passage identifies as Stott states, it says, it tells us, that the downward slippery path begins with a love for evil and then leads successively to a rejection of the truth, the deception of the devil, a judicial hardening by God, and final condemnation. 
And the only way to be protected from being deceived is to love goodness and truth. To stand firm in the midst of it. So here is a summary of this chapter. Right now is the time of restraint. Where there is a power at work restraining the power of evil. It is restraining the secret power of lawlessness and godlessness that is being held back and being held in check. Next comes the rebellion. When the restraint is removed, the Antichrist is revealed, and all hell breaks loose. After that is the retribution. When the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns, defeats the Antichrist, his followers are condemned, and Christians are ushered into eternal glory. So then... What do we do today? It is to stand firm and hold on to the truth of the gospel. To not be dissuaded or dismayed by the things that occur. And while the issues of today might be different than the specifics of the false teacher in in Thessalonica, and while the issues, while this issue identified here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 will come up again, and will be an object of cultural discussion in, our, in, in this world. And people will be scrambling to explain this passage and explaining the things that are going on. And while different issues of persecution and moral temptation and blasphemy and distortions of the truth, truth and lawlessness and godlessness will perplex Christians in their response, while all of these things are going to be happening and are at work in varying degrees today, the truth remains that if you are a Christian, you have been called by God through the gospel. You have been called by God, by the grace of God, before the foundation of the world in the truth that is unshakable. That God has got his hand firmly upon you and has called you to himself so that you would believe and decide to believe the truth of the gospel and that your clinging to Christ is not just something that you did one time ago, that you bought your ticket to heaven, but it is a present moment by moment that I am living right now, trusting in Jesus Christ, standing firm on the truth, holding, excuse me, holding to the gospel, standing on the truth of what God has done, And just as certain as Christ is coming, so certainly is this day of the rebel and the rebellion coming. So what does it mean for us today? It means to stand firm and to hold on to the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you. And Lord, this passage is kind of nuts. And Father, just the discussion of this, for some, is unsettling. Father, the discussion of this passage will make some here today, and probably has made some here today, say, what's going on? What is this? What is this guy talking about? And yet, Father, we base ourselves and we believe your word And it is your word that tells us that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave so that rebels like me could be saved, so that we might hear the good news of Jesus and have life abundant in him. 
And yet, just as certainly as your word tells us that Jesus Christ died and rose again and will come again, so too your word certainly says that that day will be preceded by the, the rebel and preceded by the rebellion. Father, there are times in life and there will be times in the course of the lives of Christians when they will get hit so hard they have no idea what just happened to them. Father, I do pray that for the truth of your gospel to be embedded in our hearts. Father, that you would plant our feet on the firm ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, that we would hold firmly to the truths of the gospel. And so not only can face that day with hope, and yes, even with joy, and yes, with peace, but Lord, that also we will face that day and delight to see your glory and to see your glory and your kingdom come in its fullness. Father, may we stand firm. By your Spirit, strengthen us in this faith. Strengthen us in the gospel. And thank you that our hope and confidence is in you and in you alone. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.